Arthur Pink, Spiritual Growth, and I believe this is number five. And uh, we're just going through this book. It's a really good book. Um, and uh, we're on the nature of spiritual growth. And we've come to uh, Roman numeral number four, but I think we'll read this last sub-point. Spiritual growth consists in a deeper delight in spiritual things and objects. This is ever the accompaniment and effect of spiritual knowledge, affording us another criterion by which we test the kind of knowledge we have. <clears throat> a mere speculative knowledge of divine things is cold and lifeless, but a spiritual and experimental acquaintance with them affects the heart and moves the affections. One may accept much of God's word, though, through early training in the traditional way, and even be prepared to contend with the, th the same against those who oppose it. Yet it will avail nothing when the devil assails him. Hence we are told that the wicked one is revealed, whose coming is after the works of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders. God permits him to work with all deceitfulness, deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. And his reason for this is stated to be because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved, Second Thessalonians 2.10. At best they only had a letter acquaintance with the truth. It was never enshrined in their affections. But different far it is with the regenerate. Each of them can say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119.97 Spiritual delight necessarily follows spiritual knowledge, for an object cannot be appreciated any further than it is apprehended and known. Spiritual knowledge of things imparts not only a conviction of the ver ver verity and certainty of their reality, but it all produces the soul's adherence to them, the cleaving of the affections unto them, a holy joy in them. So if they appear inexpressibly blessed and glorious unto those granted a discovery of the same. But not having been admitted into the secret thereof, the unregenerate can form no true concept or estimate of the Christian's experience. And when he hears him exclaiming of the things of God, Psalm 19.10, more are they to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey of the, or the honeycomb. <clears throat> but he can regard such language as wild enthusiasm or fanaticism. The natural man lacks both, the, lacks both the power to discern the beauty of spiritual things and a palate to taste their sweetness. Nor is the believer's relish for God's word confined into the promise, promises and comforting portions. He also declares, Psalm 119.47, I will delight myself in thy commandments which I have loved. The more the believer advances in spiritual acquaintance with the excellency and beauty of heavenly things, the more solid satisfaction do they afford his mind. The more the Christian enters into the importance and value of God's eternal truth, the more his heart is drawn out into the glorious objects revealed therein. The more do they actually taste that the Lord is gracious, 1 Peter 2.3, 2, 3, the more he will delight himself in him. The more light he is granted upon the sublime mysteries of the faith, the more he will admire the wondrous wisdom which devised them, the power which executed them, the grace which conveyed them. The more he realizes the scriptures are the very word of God himself, the more he is awed by their solemnity and impressed by their weightiness. The more the affable perfections of deity are revealed to his spirit, the more he will exclaim, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Exodus 15.11 and the more his heart is occupied with the person, office, and work of the Redeemer, the more he will enter into the experience of him who said, <coughs> Philippians 3.7, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. It is true that through slackness and folly the believer may to a considerable extent lose his relish for spiritual things, so that his reading of the word affords him little satisfaction and delight. 
One who in, in, eats and drinks unwisely upsets the stomach, and then the palate no longer finds the choice of food agreeable to him. It is thus spiritually. If the believer be out of communion with God and turns to the world for satisfaction, he loses his appetite for the heavenly mana. Wherefore we are bidden to lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, James 1.21. Therefore must be this laying apart before there can be an appreciative reception of the word. So again, 1 Peter 2.1 shows us that there are certain lusts which have to be mortified if we are to be as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If such exhortations be duly heeded, and the word of Christ dwells in us richly, then we shall be found singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Colossians 3.16, with an ever-deepening joy in him. Roman numeral, Roman numeral <coughs> number four, and then he's got number three under it. <clears throat> Spiritual growth consists in a greater love for God. When pointing out the various aspects of regeneration in chapter 6, we quoted Romans 5.5, 5, The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given unto us. Contrary to the commentators, we do not regard the reference there as being to God's love for his people, but rather of the blessed effects or consequences of the same. First, because the scope and unity of the whole context require such an interpretation. In 5.1-11, the apostle enumerates the sevenfold result of our being justified by faith. We have peace with God, verse 1. We are established in his favor, verse 2. We rejoice in hope, verse 2. We are enabled to benefit from trials, verses 3 and 4. We have a hope that fails not, verse 5. Our hearts are drawn to God, out to God, verse 5. We are assured of a final preservation, verses 6 to 10. Second, the relation of the second half of verse 5, because to the first leads to the same conclusion. It is our love to God which furnishes evidence that our hope is a valid one. Third, God's love for us is in himself, and though manifested unto us, could scarcely be said to be shed abroad in our hearts. Verse 8 clearly distinguishes his love toward us. By nature the elect have not one, <clears throat> one particle of love for God, nay, their very minds are enmity against him. Romans 8, 7. But he does not leave them forever in their fearful state. No. Having from eternity set his heart upon them, he has determined to win their hearts unto himself. And how is that accomplished? By shedding abroad his love in their hearts, which we understand to denote by communicating from himself a spiritual principle of love which qualifies and enables him to love him, them to love him. Faith is this gift to them. Ephesians 2, 8. And the evidence of that principle being in them is that they now believe and trust in him. Hope is also his gift to them. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 For prior to regeneration, we had no hope. Ephesians 2.12 And the evidence of that principle being in us is that we have a confident expectation of the future. In like manner, love is also a divine gift. And the evidence of that principle being in an individual is that he now loves God, loves his Christ, loves his image in his people. Note how in Romans 5 we have the Christian's faith, verse 1, hope, 4 and 5, love, verse 5, which are the great, three great dynamics and regulators of the Christian life. This divine virtue is communicated to the hearts of all Christians as that which moves their affections to cleave unto God, in Christ as their supreme good. It is designated the love of God because he is the bestower of it and because he is the object of it and because he is the increaser and per perfecter of it. It is first stirred unto action or drawn out to God, and then the soul apprehends his love for him. For we love God because he first loved us. 
1 John 4.19. For so long as we feared his wrath, we hated him. This particular grace is the one which most affects the others. If the heart be kept right, the head will not go far wrong. But when left cools, every grace languishes. Hence we find the apostle praying for the Ephesian saints that they might be rooted and grounded in love. 3.17 As the Christian grows, he learns to love God, not only for what he has done for him, but chiefly for what he is in himself, the infinitely glorious one, the sum of all perfection. Yet our love to him is easily chilled through the hearts being turned unto other objects. In fact, of all our graces, this one is the most sensitive and delicate and needs the most cherishing and guarding. Matthew 24, 12, Revelation 2, 5. The force of this has just been pointed out appears in that exhortation, keep yourselves in the love of God. Jude 21. Negatively, that means avoid everything which would chill and dampen it. Careless living soon dulls our sense of God of God's love. Eshu, whatever would grieve the spirit or thereby give him occasion to convict us of our sins and occupy us with our waywardness instead of taking the things of Christ and showing them unto us. John sixteen fourteen. Shun the embraces of the world. Keep yourself from idols. 1 John five twenty one. Positively. It signifies use the appointed means for keeping your affections warm and lively. Set on things above. Familiar yourself with God's holy word, regarding it as a series of letters from your heavenly father. Cultivate communion with him by prayer and frequent meditations in his perfections. Keep up a fresh sense of his love for you, sunning your soul in the enjoyment of it. Above all, adhere strictly to the path of obedience. When the Lord Jesus bade us continue in my love, he at once went on to how explain that we may do so. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I has kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. John 15, 9 and 10. See John Compare John, uh, 1 John 5, 3. A deeper and increasing love for God is not to be ascertained so much by our consciousness of the same as by the evidence it produces. Evidences it produces. There are many who sing and talk about how much they love Christ, but their walk gives the lie to their avowals. On the one hand, there are some who bemoan the feebleness of their love and coldness in their affections, whose lives make it manifest that their hearts are true to him. Feelings are no safe criteria in this matter. It is conduct which is the surest index to it. Moreover, it must be borne in mind that the holiest saint, whoever walked this earth who enjoyed the most intimate fellowship of the Lord, would be the first to acknowledge and bewail the inadequacy of his affection for him, whose love passeth knowledge. Nevertheless, there is such a thing as growing love for God in Christ, and the same is demonstrated by a stronger bent of soul toward him the mind being more stayed upon him, the heart enjoying more communion with him and greater delight in him, and the conscience increasingly exercised in our care to please him. The more we are spiritually engaged in, with God's love for us, the more our affections to him will be inflamed. Number four. Spiritual growth consists of the strengthening and enlarging of our faith. Faith is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8, by which is signified that it is a spiritual principle, grace, or virtue, which he communicates to the hearts of his elect at their regeneration. As his talents are bestowed upon us to trade with, to profit by, and increase, so the principle of faith is given us to use and employ to the glory of God. Its first act is to believe Christ, trust in him, and, and as Colossians 2.6 bids us, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. 
This is the most comprehensive and summarized exhortation and would require many details to in order to furnish a full explanation of it. For example, it might be pointed out that the Christian is called upon to walk humbly, dependably, submissively, or obediently. Yet all of these are included in faith itself. Faith is a humbling and self-emptying grace, for it is a stretching forth of the beggar's hand to receive God's bounty. Faith is an acknowledgment of my own insufficiency and need, a leaning upon one who is mighty to save. Faith is also an act of the will whereby it surrenders to the authority of Christ and receives him as king to reign over our hearts and lives. Thus there is, there is much more in it than this, yet the prime and essential force of Ephesians 2.6 is, as ye have become Christians at the, at the first by an act of faith in Christ Jesus the Lord, continue trusting in him and let your life be regulated by faith. Walk denotes progress or are going forward. <clears throat> It denotes primarily the way to live. In Hebrews 10.38, we are told, Now the just shall live by faith. A very elementary statement is that, yet one which is turned into a serious error the moment we tamper with or change its pronoun. We are not justified because of our faith, but because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. But that righteousness is not actually reckoned to our account until we believe. Instrumentally, we are justified by faith. Romans 5.1. Okay, faith is the sole instrument which lays hold of Christ. Nor are we justified, uh, nor are the justified bidden to live upon their faith, though many vainly try to do so. Nor the believer is to live upon Christ, yet it is only by faith that he can do so. Let us be as simple as possible. I break my fast with food, yet I partake of the food by means of a spoon. I feed myself, yet it is the food and not the spoon I eat. It is said of Esau, by the sword thou shalt live. Genesis twenty-seven forty. Not on thy sword, he could not eat it. Esau would live on what his sword brought in. The Christian makes a serious blunder when he attempts to live upon the faith he fancies he can find or feel within himself. Rather, he is to feed upon the word, and this he does only so far as his faith is operative, as faith lays hold of and appropriates its holy and blessed contents. Now the just shall live by faith, Hebrews 10.28, may be well regarded as a text of the sermon which follows immediately in the next chapter. For in Hebrews 11, we are shown at great length and a considerable variety of detail how the Old Testament saints exercise that God-given principle, how they live by faith and wrought great wonders by it. Nothing is said of their courage, zeal, patience, but all their works and triumphs are attributed to faith. The reason for this being that their courage, zeal, and patience were the fruits of faith. As it was with them, so it is with us. We are called to walk by faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And the extent to which we do so will determine the measure of success or failure we have in our Christian lives. As the Lord Jesus declared unto the two blind beggars who besought his mercy, according to your faith be it unto you, Matthew 9, 29. And to the father of the demon-possessed child, all things are possible to him that believeth, Mark 9, 23. <clears throat> If we are straightened, it is not in God but in ourselves, for he ever responds to reliance in and counting upon his intervention. He has expressly promised to honor those who honor him, and nothing honors him more than a firm and childlike faith in him. Galatians 2.20 The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. <clears throat> Such a testimony from the chief apostle 
of the apostles shows us the place which faith has in the Christian life. The expression, the faith of the Son of God, signifies that he is the grand object of faith, the one on whom it is to be exercised, which would help the reader to better understand of the love of God in Romans 5, 5 and our remarks therein. They're on. The Christian life is essentially a life of faith, and in proportion as his faith is not operative, does he fall, fail to live the Christian life. A life of faith consists of faith being engaged with Christ, drawing on him, receiving from him the supply of every need. The life of faith begins by looking to Christ, trusting in him, relying wholly upon him as our righteousness before God. And it is continued by looking to and trusting in him for everything else. Faith is to look to Christ for wisdom that we may <clears throat> be able to understand all that he has revealed concerning God, concerning ourselves, salvation, and various duties. Faith is to lay hold of his precepts and appropriate his promises. But more specifically, faith is to look to Christ for strength to perform his precepts acceptably. As we have no righteousness of our own, so no strength, we are as dependent upon him for the one as for the other, and each is obtained from him by faith. But at this most vital point, many of the Lord's people had been grievously missled. Under the guise of debasing the creature and exalting divine grace, they have been made to believe that they are quite helpless in this matter. That as God alone is the importer of faith, so he is alone the increaser of it. And that they have been uh, to meekly submit to his will as to the measure of faith he bestows or what to what he withholds from him, from them. The consequence is that so far from their faith increasing, they are for the most part left to spend their remaining days on earth in a state full of doubting and fears. And what is still worse, many of them feel no blame or reproach for the feebleness of their faith, but instead blatantly attribute it to the sovereignty of God. If such people rebuked a godless drunkard for his intemperance, they would be justly shocked if he were to reply, God has not given me grace to overcome my thirst. And yet when they were proof for their unbelief, they virtually charge God with it by saying that he has not granted them a larger measure of faith. What a wicked slander. What a horrible misuse of the truth of God's sovereign grace. The blame is theirs. And they should honestly acknowledge it and penitently confess it before him. <clears throat> it is perfectly true that God is the increaser, as well as the giver of faith. But it is certainly does not follow that this we have no responsibility in the matter. The littleness and weakness of my faith is entirely my own fault. Do not to God's unwillingness to give me more, but to my sinful failure to use what he has already given me. To my not crying earnestly unto the Lord, Lord, increase our faith, Luke 17, 5. And to my woeful neglect in making a proper use of the means he has appointed for my obtaining an increase of it. When the disciples were filled with terror at the tempest and awoke their master crying, Carest thou not that we perish? Mark 4, 38. He reproved them for their unbelief, saying, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Matthew 8.26 That was far from inculcating the, the deadly delusion that they had no responsibility concerning the measure and strength of their faith. On another occasion he said to the disciples, O fools and slow of heart to believe! Luke 24.25 Which plainly signified that they were to blame for their lack of faith and were to be admonished for their unbelief. If I have surrendered myself to the Lordship of Christ and trusted in Him as an all-sufficient Savior, then Christ is mine, and I may know He is mine upon the infallible authority of God's Word. Since Christ is mine, then it is both my privilege and duty to obtain an increasing knowledge of and acquaintance with Him through the Scriptures. It is my privilege and duty to trust in Him at all times. Psalm 62, 8. 
to make known to him my every need and count upon him to graciously supply the same. It is my privilege and duty to make full use of Christ and to live upon him, to draw from him full to, from his fullness, John 1.16, to freely avail myself of, of his sufficiency to meet my every want. It is my privilege and duty to store up his precepts and promises in my memory, that the one may direct my conduct and the other support my soul. It is the office of faith to obtain from him strength for the former and comfort from the latter, expecting him to make good his word. Ask, and ye shall receive. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Matthew 7, 7. It is my privilege and duty to mix faith, Hebrews 4, 2, with every recorded sentence that fell from his sacred lips, and according as I shall, as I do so, Shall I be nourished up? 1 Timothy 4, 6. My faith will be fed, thrive, and become stronger. But if, on the other hand, if I walk by sight, if I constantly take my eyes off the proper object, and all my time looking within my own corruptions, I shall go backward and not forward. If I am more concerned about my inward comforts than I am about my outward walk and pleasing of Christ, in earnestly seeking to follow the example he has left for me, then the Holy Spirit will be grieved and will cease taking of the things of Christ and showing them unto me. If I form the habit of attempting to view the promises of God through the darkened and thick lens of my difficulties, instead of looking at my difficulties in the light of God's promises, then defeat rather than victory will inevitably follow. If I turn my eyes from the all-sufficient Savior and am occupied with the winds and waves of my circumstances, then like Peter of old, I shall begin to sink. If I do not make it my daily and diligent business to resist the workings of unbelief in my heart, and cry out to Christ for strength to enable me to do it, then faith will surely suffer an eclipse. And the fault will be entirely my own. If I neglect feeding upon the words of faith and good doctrine, 1 Timothy 4, 6, then my faith will necessarily be weak and languishing. We say again that the Christian life is a life of faith. And just so far as the believer is not actuated by this glorious principle, does he fail at the most vital point. But let it be said very emphatically that a life of faith is not the mystical and nebulous thing which far too many imagine, but an intensely practical one. Now, if the monopoly of men like George Mueller and those who go forth to preach the gospel in foreign lands without any guaranteed salary or belonging to any human organization trusting God alone for the supply of their every need, rather it is the birthright and privilege of every child of God, nor is it a life made up of ecstasies and rapturous experiences lived up in the clouds. No, it is to be worked out in the common level of everyday life. The man or woman whose conduct is regulated by the divine precepts and whose heart is sustained by the divine promises, who performs his or her ordinary duties is unto the Lord, looking to him for wisdom, strength, and patience for the discharge thereof, and who counts upon his blessing on the same. Is living a life of faith as truly as the most zealous and self-sacrificing preacher. It is true, we must be on guard against unwarrantably exalting the means and making them a substitute for the Lord himself. The doctrine, the precepts, and the promises of Scripture are so many windows through which we are to behold God. It is our privilege and duty to look to him for his blessing upon the means, and since he has appointed them the same, to count upon him sanctifying them to us, expecting him to make them effectual. But we must conclude our remarks upon this point by mentioning some of the evidences of a deepening and increasing faith. It is proof of a stronger and larger faith, 
when the soul is more established in the truth, when there is a steadier confidence in God, and when we make great, greater use of the promises, when we are less influenced and affected by the other professing Christians, what other professing Christians believe, resting more of ourselves and more upon Christ. When many of his unregenerate disciples are turning away from Christ, he, and he says, Will you also go away? And we can answer, To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, John 6, 66-69. We have become more conscientious and diligent in the performing of our duties, for faith is shown by its works, James 2, 8. Number five, spiritual growth consists in advancing in personal piety. This matter would be sadly incomplete if we omitted all reference to progress and practical godliness. As various aspects of this will come before us under the next branch of our subject, there is less need now to enter into much detail. As the Christian obtains an enlarged spiritual appreciation of God's perfection, not only is his heart increasingly affected by his wondrous goodness and grace, but he is more and more awed by his high sovereignty and ineffable holiness, so that he has a deeper reverence for him and his fear a larger sphere in his heart, never exerting a more potent influence in his approaches to him and on his deportment and conduct. In like manner, as the Christian becomes better acquainted with the person, offices, and work of Christ, he obtains not only a fuller realization of how much he owes to him, and what he has in him, but he is made more and more conscious of what he has due unto him, and what become and what becomes one is a follower of the Lord of glory. The better he realizes that he is not his own, but is bought with a price, the more he resolves and endeavors to glorify God in Christ in his body and in his spirit. First Corinthians six nineteen and twenty. Longing more ardently for the time when he will be able to do so without uh without let or hindrance. Chapter 5. It's analogy. Roman numeral 1. An analogy is an agreement or correspondence in certain respects between things and which otherwise differ. And just as is often an aid to obtaining the force of a word by considering its synonyms, so it is frequently helps so it frequently helps to better understand of a subject or or object to compare it with another and ascertain the analogy between them. This message was frequently used by our Lord in his public teaching, when he likened the kingdom of heaven to a considerable variety of things. The same principle is illustrated by the figurative mean, names which Scripture gives of the people of God. For example, they are called sheep. And not only because of the relation which they sustain to Christ their shepherd, but also because they are they have many resemblances between the one and the other. God having designed that in, in different respects, this animal more than any other should shadow forth the nature and character of a Christian. The same divine wisdom which has designated our Savior, both the lamb and the lion, was exercised in selecting with various objects and creatures after which his children are figuratively named. And it behooves us to follow out the analogy between them and learn the lessons they are intended to import. Isaiah 63, 1 that they are called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Both in the Old Testament and the New, the similitude is used of the saints. The psalmist declared, this is 52.8, I am like a green olive tree in the house of God, and affirmed, uh, this is Psalm 92.12 and 13, <clears throat> and affirmed the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree, he shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish. Our Savior <clears throat> employed the same figure, when he said, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. And again, 
Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt. For a tree is known by its fruit. Matthew 7, 17, 12, 23. Thus, every passage where fruit is mentioned is also an extension of the same emblem. In Romans 11, the apostle likened the nation of Israel to a good olive tree and Christendom to a wild olive tree, verses 24 and 17. In connection with their testimony before the world, the Savior was termed the branch of the Lord and as one who would grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground, Isaiah 4, 2, 53, 2. Well, he resembled himself and his people in communion with him as to the true vine. John 15.1. Now it should be obvious from the frequency with which the similitude is used in the scriptures that it must be a peculiar, instructive one. Some of the more prominent resemblances are quickly apparent. For example, their attractiveness. How the countryside and the mountain slopes are beautified by the trees. And what is so lovely in the human realm as those who bear the image of Christ and show forth his praises. They may be despised by the unregenerate, and to the anointed eye God's children are the excellent of the earth. And how they be regarded by him, whose workmanship they are, is revealed in those words, His beauty shall be as the olive tree, Hosea 14.6. So to their usefulness. Trees provide a habitation for the birds, shade for the earth, nourishment for the creature, material for building, fuel for the relief of man against the cold. Many too are the uses which God makes of his people in this world. Among other things, predicated of them, they are the salt of the earth, preserving the body politic from going to utter putrefaction. Before turning to that which bears most closely, and by the way, Jesus said if the, if the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing, it should be cast out before men to be trampled underfoot. So if you have a Christianity that doesn't influence culture, a Christianity that doesn't influence uh, politics in a good way, then your Christianity is not Christianity. Before turning to that, which bears most closely upon our present theme, it should be particularly noted that it is not wild, but cultivated trees, which are the, which is the similitude used. Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. Blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters. Observe how frequently this word planted occurs, which the Lord hath planted, Numbers 24, 6. And compare Psalm 92, 13, 14, 104, 16, Isaiah 61, 3. They are the property of the heavenly husbandman, John 15, 1, 1 Corinthians 3, 7, and 8, and the objects of his care. That it is which gives solemn force to our Lord's words, every tree which my Father hath not planted shall be rooted up, Matthew 15, 13. This figure of the saints being planted by God, transferred from one soil and position to another, has at least a threefold reference. First, to God's eternal decree, which he took them out of the creature mass and chose them in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3. Second, to the regeneration, when he lifts them out of the realm of death and makes them new creatures in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.13. Third, to their translation, when they are removed from earth and planted in his celestial paradise. But it is the growth of trees we must now consider. And I'm going to stop there. I don't want to get into a whole new topic. We'll stop there. Uh, very, very good book. Very, very useful. And uh, Pink uh, really had a gift. Uh, he knew scriptures very well, obviously, and of course he knew the Puritans inside and out. Early in his career, he had uh, very difficulties with eschatology. He had, was influenced by dispensationalism, but he repented of that, I, I believe, and, and became quite good on much better in eschatology. But on this stuff, very good. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our brother Pink and his ministry. We ask that you would sanctify us by these words, this teaching from scripture. Help us to increase our faith, Lord. Help us to pray for faith. Help us to 
uh, cherish it. Help us to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that we may benefit thereby and walk according to your statutes, commandments, and ordinances, Lord, and be a holy people, a covenant-keeping people that loves you and obeys your word. So give us a deeper love of your Son, a deeper love of you, a deeper love of your word, and help our faith grow. In Jesus' name, amen.